Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. I am Ezra Klein, and my guest this week is Cal Newport. I am very excited about this one because I've become a sort of embarrassingly big fan of, of Newport. He's a computer scientist from Georgetown, but the way I know him is that he wrote a book called Deep Work, which is about trying to retrain your mind to be less distracted and spend more time in a creative, focused place. And it's not just retrain your mind. It's remake your schedule. It's pulling good habits. I think as folks have noticed on who are listeners of the podcast before, I'm a little bit worried about the level of distraction in all of our lives, a little bit concerned that Twitter and Facebook are crowding out slower, maybe more meaningful kinds of information. And this book has actually led me to make very, very concrete changes in my habits. I've changed my meeting schedule. I'm really trying to spend about an hour a day reading just one book, to, even if the book isn't good, to learn how to do that focus again. So I have gotten a lot from it. I've been very excited to talk to Cal. Uh, I was happy he turned out to be nearby and we could do it in person. This was a great conversation. I learned a lot from it and I have more things that I'm going to be trying to change in my own life around it. I hope it is as useful for you. As always, a couple quick requests. Please share the podcast, Facebook, Twitter, email. We maybe don't say the best things about these social networks in this podcast, but it is still important that you tell people about this podcast there. Please listen to my other podcast, The Weeds, where I get deep into the weeds of policy with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. And finally, keep your requests for the show coming at Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Without further ado, here's Cal Newport. Cal Newport, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Ezra. So you're a computer scientist who seems now, I didn't realize this, who seems to have, going back to your time as an undergrad, been writing books about a thing clearly and systematically about succeeding in school and work. Yeah. What, why? <laughs> <laughs> I like the sort of charitable summary you've given to the books. When I was a student, I wrote this series of books for students about how to be more successful in school, how to get more out of the the educational experience. But where did that come from? That is a weird hobby. Uh, it, it is a weird hobby. Where it came from actually is when I was in high school, this was the first dot-com boom actually, the late 1990s. And I was a computer geek and I had a dot-com company. I had a, a tech company. I was an entrepreneur. So I was a 17-year-old, 16-year-old 
reading business books and reading books about how to be successful in business and how to organize yourself and how to manage your time and how to market typical business book stuff. The reason we're talking here is that I have read your recent book, Deep Work, and have become an embarrassing fanboy of it, recommending it to all kinds of people, demanding people in my organization read it, and generally, uh, becoming, generally really uh, becoming really annoying about promoting it. No, no, you're doing God's work. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that struck me about the book is in the last couple of years, there have been a bunch of books that came out that have taken the form of scolding people about how bad Twitter is, how bad Google is, how computers are making us distracted, and boredom is a deep social good, and look at Walt Whitman, and, and there's a whole, I don't want to call it Ludditeness, that isn't fair, but there's a, a grumpiness, is I think the word you used it when we were talking earlier. And so I've tended to reject this. I've had a, an intuitive reaction that this is bullshit, that change is something that in general you want to try to embrace. And your book actually persuaded me of the opposite. And what you argued in the book that I'd love to have you expand on a bit is that there is not necessarily a soul-filling work to boredom. But what is happening is that we are, in whatever we do, training our brains and that we are currently training our brains for a very high level of expectation of distraction, a very high level of novelty. And that if you keep doing that, you are eventually going to get to a point where your ability to focus creatively on something and go deep on it is severely compromised because your brain will have thought the adaptive thing to do is to optimize itself for continuous every five minute little hits of dopamine. Where did that idea come from for you? For me, I was working backwards, I think, from the the macro level observation that depth seemed to be important in a lot of different fields. I mean, this is what I had been exposed to. I had been... What does the word depth mean there? So when I say depth, I mean the ability to focus without distraction for a long period of time on a cognitively demanding task. So basically doing cognitive craftsmanship. And this is something I, especially at the grad school level, was trained to really respect. So I'm a theoretical computer scientist. I prove theorems for a living. I trained in a place where the ability to concentrate was seen as a tier one skill, something you would brag about. So we cared about it. We thought about it. So I, I'd always had a, an appreciation of what it meant to do cognitive craftsmanship, this ability to direct your mind towards a cognitive challenge and, and produce value on the other end. When I started writing more for a general business audience, it's when I began to see this connection that the value of depth is not just limited to these, these sort of old-fashioned antiquated fields like people who write novels or solve math equations. It was seeming relevant to a lot of different fields. And so I was working backwards from trying to understand why was depth coming up in my experience as something that was valuable? You know, what is it that it offers? What does it offer as opposed to, to other ways of approaching work? When you say it was coming up in your experience, what were some of the pings on your attention that this was something worth exploring? Well, because I started writing about it, my own experience with depth on my blog, for example. Around 2012 or so, I, I had transitioned my focus more towards the world of work and away from the world of school, mainly just because I had left school. And so that's, it was no longer as, as interesting to me. And so I was writing about a lot of these ideas. You know, this is how depth plays a role in my life. Here's how I preserve it. Here's why I find it important. And I begin to get a lot of feedback from readers where they were reporting on, yes, this is very important in my field, but we don't get to do it anymore. We don't have as much time for it as we used to. In this field, here's why it'd be important. In my field, here's why it's be important. And it, it opened my eyes that this was maybe an economic-wide trend going on with the value of depth increasing with its 
availability decreasing as opposed to just something I was reporting on from my, my own niche. I actually want to sidebar here for one second and say that it's interesting you called an economy-wide trend. People have the strong perception that we have invented all this amazing technology and so we are getting so much more done. And one of the great mysteries of this era, if you look at productivity statistics, is no evidence of it. We are seeing less of an increase in productivity than we were in the 70s and we were in the 60s and we were in the 50s. We're in a productivity slowdown, which violates people's intuitions, but is consistent with the story where we are inventing things that are taking a lot of our time, but aren't actually helping us make big breakthroughs or get our work done in a higher quality way faster. Yeah. Which I think is an experience people feel, yes. but have trouble extrapolating and, outwards. And this is an important sidebar. It's something I've looked some into because it's, it's absolutely true that non-industrial productivity has stagnated. And if, if you look at the economic data at the economy-wide scale, what the story of the IT revolution, of the personal computers and the rise of networks, is that basically you had a period in the late 1980s and into the 1990s where IT systems came into corporations and did increase mm-hmm. productivity. But this is back-end improvements. You had databases now as when you're booking flight reservations as opposed to having you know some paper system or hanging things up. You could move data and inventory information very quickly between factories. You got agile inventory systems like Walmart has. You got personal computers on people's desks. So there was more efficiency in how they produced certain documents. You didn't need typing pools. And there was a burst in productivity when the IT was applied sort of to the back-end nitty-gritty operation of industry. Then what seemed to happen in the 2000s is that we said, well, if this was good for the back end of the office, well, certainly the front end, the actual workers themselves should behave more like these IT systems. They should be more connected. They should be sending information back and forth to each other more quickly. But that was done much more haphazardly. That wasn't done with the clear metrics we had when we said if we computerize and network our inventory system, we can ship X units per day versus Y units, and that's better. And so my conjecture is that we try to extrapolate the impact of the IP revolution on sort of the back end of businesses to the front end. And we did so in a haphazard fashion. That's why we're not seeing increases in productivity. And we had the smartphone and ubiquitous email. Those trends all happened after the productivity bump of the mid-1990s, and none of them have affected the non-industrial productivity metrics. I want to challenge a word you used there. We tried. I think that you are assigning a purposefulness to what has happened that it has not had. So I think in, in my industry, Twitter is dominant in journalism. It's even more dominant now that the president uses it as his primary mode of communication. But it is every journalist I know of is on Twitter. And it came first organically. It came first that people were using it themselves to turn out their articles, to have conversations, to find sources. And then it got adopted because it seemed like everybody was doing it. You had to do it because everybody was doing it. I don't know of an organization anywhere, anywhere that before it gave its journals the advice to go on Twitter, entered into any kind of serious cost-benefit analysis of what would happen if you mainlined people into this incredibly distracting social network 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, and I'm, I'm part of this, right? It's true in my organization too. But it seems to me that we did come up with a lot of technologies that were in fact productivity enhancing. So as a journalist, the idea that I can Google any newspaper article from basically whenever or LexisNexis it as opposed to going down to the library and putting it on microfiche, it's a huge productivity improvement. Sure. But the fact of the matter is that while I'm Googling it, I might also flick over to Twitter 
and there goes 20 minutes and maybe I see a word I don't remember and I go down a Wikipedia hole and like 25 minutes later, I'm learning about Zach Morris and you know how he could stop time and save by the bell. And so there's this contest between productivity enhancing technologies and productivity detracting technologies. And to my, as far as I can tell, basically zero organizations are actually doing rigorous work mm-hmm. to separate one from the other. I think you're absolutely right. And, and when I say we tried, I, I mean it in the sense of the collective emergent hive mind of cultural technology use tried in a sort of distributed non-purpose. A story I've reported on before is if we go back to IBM, which I think is, is this is a great I think, case study of how emergent behaviors in the new technological age can can arise very rapidly without purpose. I dug up this story about IBM in the in the 1980s when they were ahead of the tech curve, their launching of their first internal email system. And so I, I interviewed one of the engineers who was on that team that was charged with, we want email within IBM, make that happen. And so they went out there and they very carefully studied How do people communicate in the office? How many memos do they send? How much stuff goes through the typing pool? How many letters are sent? How often do people stop by someone's desk? So they could calculate how much communication happens in our office. And because computers were expensive in the 80s, these were mainframes, they wanted to be careful in provisioning. So they provisioned this mainframe, it was $10 million mainframe, that should be able to easily handle all of the communication that happened in the office. They assumed that, hey, if you had email, you would do it with email as opposed to do it through a memo because it was more convenient. It took something like three or four days before the mainframe melted down due to volume of communication. The mere presence of the technology significantly changed the way the people in this organization work. No one actually said, okay, we want you all to communicate a factor of five more. But it, 20 years of habit and culture of how communication happened in the office changed in an emergent fashion with no direction, no one sitting down and say this is better in about two or three days just because the technology was available. And to me, that's the metaphor for the last 20 years. Do you use Slack? No. God bless you. (laughs) No, it's a great program. I've actually had Stuart Butterfield, the creator of it, on here. But I've been thinking a lot about that's another one where we implemented it. And I don't think thought very hard about how it would change what we did. And it is by far the best communication tool I've ever used. And it is by far the most distracting communication tool I've ever used. And one reason is, is that the way in which it differs from previous chat programs is that it has a capacity to create direct messages and notifications that none of the other ones have done, which means it is really easy for somebody to go who is in the sort of public rooms, which can notify you or not, to go and quickly like, hey, ping you on something, tell you something's over here. And I've thought a lot about how we implemented that before we at all changed social customs around it. Mm-hmm. People are pretty reticent about coming to my office and knocking on the door to ask me something, right? They feel that would be a big imposition. It's a distraction. Mm -hmm. They're not, and I'm not reticent about going into this program and on your computer screen having a little bar flash out. Social stakes are low. Hey, like uh, I want your attention for something. And maybe that's a good thing, right? Uh, I've not run a study on it. But it does feel to me that we have a lot of these programs and technologies that have emerged and they have not gone through the centuries or millennia long social, trying to think of the right word, um, social evolution that governed our habits around them. It's very fast. Yeah. Well, I I think it helps to put names to things because it can seem right now that our current behavior surrounding communication, especially in the knowledge work office environment, seems inevitable. 
or synonymous with work. This is just what it means to work. Your Slack going back and forth, emails going back and forth. That's just work in the digital age. And I think it's important to give a name to the particular work style that we've evolved so that we can actually evaluate it and recognize that it's not inevitable. So I call the approach that we use to work right now the hyperactive hive mind. And it's an approach to work where things unfold as an ongoing unstructured conversation. And this conversation could be implemented over emails going back and forth. It could be implemented on a Slack channel. But the idea is everyone can sort of reach everyone at all times. And so we have this flexible hive mind where we can just sort of structure our day and let things rock and roll as they come. If something pops in, I could just ask you about it. You can ask this person about it. I need this. I'll ask you about it. And it's this very sort of flexible, seemingly efficient way of handling complicated business. Of course, the hyperactive hive mind has its negative impacts, which is the fact that it's not well-suited to the way our brains work. So from the 20,000-foot perspective, say, hey, this is great. It's so flexible. You can start an organization in this modern era just by giving everyone an email address or a Slack ID and just rock and roll. You don't need complicated processes or standing operator procedures. But we're finding increasingly that it's conflicting with the way our brains actually work. So we have the human brains, which are sort of the main capital investment in these organizations, the things that are supposed to take in information, cogitate on it, and produce something more valuable – also involved in the sort of logistics and process and doing this constant hyperactive hive mind conversation, which is preventing the brains from doing the processing at a high level. So we have this weird tension. But I'm optimistic because I look back historically to other technological revolutions and their impact on the commercial sector. And the story you seem to see is that it takes a while. The new technology comes in that's going to have a big impact on the world of business. The storyline is, okay, at first, we're going to have a generation where things are relatively naive and simplistic. We're going to use these technologies in the easiest, most convenient possible way just to start to get used to them. We'll look back at that in the future and say, okay, that was pretty simplistic. If you look at the early industrial revolution, I mean, we were running factories in wildly inefficient ways. But people were worried about the logistical complexity of trying to manage their own inventory or to have too much control over all the different processes. Managers at the time who were just the capital owners in the area said this was kind of scary. Let's just keep it simple. We'll have sort of subcontractors in the factory. You just, hey, produce this part. When you're done, bring it to me. But then eventually we get the assembly line. It just takes some time for us to process the technologies and figure out how do we use these in a way that produces the most value. So I think that evolution is inevitable in knowledge work. I think the idea that the way we're using email and Slack and communication right now in the very early days of knowledge work is somehow the best way, that we figured it out first, right away, how to do this best is ahistorical. And almost certainly, if you go 20, 30 years in the future, we're not going to have this hyperactive hive mind, everyone plugged into a constant unstructured chatter. I think we're going to look back at that and shake our heads with a, with a little bit of chagrin. I'm a little more skeptical, and, and I'm skeptical for one of the reasons you point out in the book, which is that maybe this was not well aligned with how our brains work. But there is evidence and there's reason to believe it is changing how our brains work and will change it even more if it is all you've ever known. I mean, if you come out of college today, you go right into an office with email, with Twitter, with Slack, with all these different things. And you have this fascinating, you have a quote in here that was the first quote that has ever convinced me to let myself be bored which is being against boredom and being pro-continuous information flow at all times was a deeply held ideological belief of mine. I argued yeah. this a lot with people. But you write, the use of a distracting service does not by itself reduce your brain's ability to focus. It's instead the constant switching from low-stimuli, high-value activities to high-stimuli, low-value activities at the slightest hint of boredom or cognitive challenge 
that teaches your mind to never tolerate an absence of novelty. And that teaching of the mind, that feeling that I need to be looking at my phone when I'm at a urinal because 45 seconds unstimulated is some kind of deep waste, that feels more intrinsic. And to the extent that we create preferences for that, automatic and internal preferences, it will cut against any kind of large-scale reevaluation of those technologies and how we use them. Maybe, but there's a countervailing force here, which is dollars and cents. So if it's true that this way we're running knowledge work organizations is a wildly inefficient use of the main capital investment, which is in human brains, that means there's a profit imperative. And so what happens when the first company that builds itself explicitly around depth and concentration finds its quarterly earnings are far outpacing its peers. That's a very powerful countervailing force, which I think is actually powerful enough to actually start retraining people's brains or getting people broken from these addictions. I mean, I'm convinced. I'm convinced the industrial metaphor here is what we're doing in knowledge work would be like if you invested all this money in high-end factory equipment and then ran it at 20% of its capacity just because it seemed too inconvenient to figure out how to actually wire it up or or configure it into its maximum capacity. That would never fly in the industrial sector. That's what we're doing in the knowledge work sector, to make a massive investment in in a highly trained human brain that's going to produce value and then subject it to constant attention switching, context switching, attention fragmentation. It's like putting sand in the gears of a high-precision piece of machinery. You're not getting, to put it somewhat crassly, a return on your investment. So I have faith that the countervailing force of profit, wanting to actually make money, trying to produce more value, might actually be, maybe this is unexpected or ironic, but actually the force that's going to save us from falling too far uh, culturally into a sort of an addictive morass. So help me think about that specifically. I run an organization. We have about 80 people. We enjoy making a profit, Uh, (laughs) and as everybody in media does. And we are also, I think it is fair to say, pretty distracted. We do work that prizes deep concentration and, and deep engagement with the topics we're covering. But Folks also feel, not just for reasons of personal preference, that you got to be on Twitter to make sure you're not missing news, and you got to be on Slack to make sure you're not missing what your coworkers or your editors say, and make sure that you got to be on email because your source might email you back, and sometimes the phone rings, and then there's just all the other stuff of, of life. So if you were building or advising an organization and you were trying to be a place that was based around deep work and concentration, what are the principles you would use? What are the tactics you would employ? How would you do it? Yeah, it's a good question. One I've been researching recently. So I've been out there trying to find examples of organizations that I call email-free, which is a general term I mean to indicate organizations in which unstructured messaging does not play a major role in their day-to-day workflow. Organizations where there's no inbox they have to check when they come home from work, and they maybe they have email addresses, but it's something they look at occasionally. And what I'm finding, and I'll say for the most part, these organizations right now tend to be relatively small technology firms, right? That's where I'm seeing the innovation. And I don't know how it scales. So this is, this is early stage. But what I'm essentially seeing is more structure. They're placing more structure to how the day unfolds and how information flows. So instead of saying we need lots of information, this is crucial to our mission, so let's just open the floodgates and just be exposed to information, they say, well, what is this information? Where does it come in? Who should be responsible for processing it? What should the pipes be? How should those pipes interact with the other processes you're doing? And so you get organizations where you have much more structured days. The one I was profiling recently, for example, they had been the poster boy for Slack 
addiction. The owner of the company said that eventually the Slack notification tone began to instill in him almost like a PTSD type reaction. And they lost two engineers to burn out through the, the, the constant messaging. So he said, enough, no more Slack, essentially no more email. I mean, they still use it, but mainly when you would, the same way you would use the post. It's just easier than sending a letter. They get invoices sent through it. And the way they run their organization is they start with a morning meeting. It's a stand-up meeting. Everyone's there. Okay, who's working on what? What do you need from who? Okay, go work. They do this. There's no inboxes, no communication until lunch. All right, then at lunch, let's check back in. Okay, who is where? Who needs what from who? All right, now let's go work in the afternoon. Their projects are then tracked in these online project management tools where everyone can see what the tasks are, who's working on what, people can post their questions. In the afternoon, they service these online project management silos. So they update them, here's where we are. And then they meet again at the end of the day. Where are we? Is anything left hanging? And it turns out it works fine. They're synchronizing their communication in this sort of structured way. They have structured silos with their digital tools for where information goes, where you can find who's working on what. And it's gotten rid of the need for them to have this ongoing unstructured conversation. Now, every industry is different. Every scale is different, but these type of examples give me hope that you can have an organization in which information is key, communication is key, connectivity is key, yet not have to give in to it's just a hyperactive hive mind. Everyone plugged in at all times. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. There's an interesting idea, I think, lurking in there, which is about batching your tasks and about engaging with things in a place of attention versus distraction. So let's take email for a second. One version of this is email is 
too rough and you need to disengage from it in, in some very fundamental way. But another version of it, which I think that you actually mentioned in the book, but other people have talked about a lot over time, is batching emails. So you respond to emails at 9 a.m., at noon, at 4 p.m., and maybe right before you leave the office. And I've at times been able to follow a schedule like that. And the thing that fascinated me about it, again, when I have had the discipline to follow it, is I become better at responding to email, not worse. And with email, with Twitter, with Facebook, with a bunch of these things, I often flick to them for the feeling of distraction. I, I, I move over to them because I'm doing something else that is hard or that is boring or whatever the reason I've decided I, I need a distraction is, mm -hmm. but I'm also not going there to engage. So an email comes in and I scan it and then I go back because I don't have time to respond, right? I'm actually doing something else. And then I forget about that email ever existing and it's gone. And it's interesting the way you frame that because it doesn't necessarily sound to me that what is happening there is a withdrawal from the, the communication tools of that is also happening, but is a structuring of when certain things happen. It could be that you only meet on – if it, like imagine that's a remote workforce, right? Maybe you only meet on Slack at noon and otherwise it's quiet. But – it seems to be taking out the space in which you're just there for distraction as opposed to for engagement. But is that a bad thing? Uh, no, I think it's a good yeah, thing. Yeah, because that this is one of the issues with the modern cognitive state of the modern knowledge worker is that in the late 90s, early 2000s, people multitask, you know, the literal multitask. And they have multiple windows open and, and, hey, look, I'm doing four things at the same time. And then we all got wise, right? In the, and later in the 2000s, multitasking doesn't work. I don't multitask. I single task. But what we do instead is the quick checks, what you're just talking about. I'm, I'm writing, but let me just glance at the inbox. But I'm mainly writing. That was just two minutes. Let me just glance at Twitter to make sure, you know, nothing happened. Okay, but that was just two minutes. And we count that as single tasking. But we, we, we have a growing amount of research and a lot of anecdotal experience that says actually that can be just as bad because there's this, this attention switching cost that when you see that email and you're like, oh, I can't answer it right now. Let me go back to my writing. You're not forgetting it. And in fact, your brain's working on it. And it, everyone has this experience of your brain writing emails in your head. You, you're, you're sitting there trying to write a response to, a, to an entirely unimportant email. And you're like, why am I thinking so much about what I'm going to say in a response to this boring logistical email? Your brain processes it. It works on it. You have a non-trivial part of your cognitive resources still thinking about this. So the state of continual partial attention, to borrow a phrase, where you're glance at this, glance at that. It's basically a state of reduced cognitive capacity, and it has almost the same negative impacts of just having two things going on at the same time. And so I don't think as many people are as astute as you are at realizing that that's actually that sort of structured distraction is actually having a large cognitive cost. So I'm, I'm fascinated by this research, and I'd like to hold here on it for a minute because I do this. I appreciate you calling me astute on this, but I am constantly flicking between different things, even though I know I, I shouldn't be. And it often feels intuitively like what I'm doing is giving myself a rest for a minute. Right, I'm working on a piece. The next paragraph is coming hard, so I'm going to go and give it a rest for a minute. And there is a context in other things in life that works. When you're working out, you like take a little walk in between sets or in between sprints or whatever it is you're doing. Or when you are, you know, working on something difficult, maybe you take a walk. And what you're saying is that jumping over to something that's going to engage you, but you're not going to engage with. It doesn't rest you. It actually pulls away from the resources when you go back to the first thing. Yeah. And, and it can take a while for that cognitive residue, as they call it, to actually clear. And I wrote an article on this not too long ago called Deep Breaks, where I was trying to get at 
what's the equivalent of the taking a breather in the gym between sets when you're doing cognitive work? What's the type of break that can give you that recharge without actually harming your ability to, to go forward? If you're in the gym, for example, it's fine to sit there and listen to the song and, and take a breather. You're still in the general mindset of I'm working out. But if you instead leave the gym and you know get a coffee and start talking to someone, you're going to lose. You've lost that whole mindset of I'm lifting heavy things and it hurts. And I think the same applies with cognitive work. And it's a bit of a fuzzy line. But in general, it seems if you switch your attention briefly to something that is unresolved, you can't resolve in that moment, or something that is too closely related to the professional sphere in which the other thing is. So it's another professional task. It's an email that you need to answer for a colleague or something like this. That can really hijack your brain space. On the other hand, if you go for a walk or if, you know, you talk about the Nats game for five minutes, you know, over when you're getting some coffee, that's, it's far enough removed from what you're doing. It's not leaving unresolved tasks to, to lurk there in your brain. That type of break can be restorative. It's a hard balance. Then people always ping me on this because I'll talk about how I do these deep work days where I have done eight hours of deep work. And they say, well, you can't do eight hours of constant deep work. And it's like, oh, no, I take lots of breaks. Like, well, how, how can you have both? How do you have both? How can you have a bunch of breaks but also have, have unbroken concentration? And I think it matters what you do in between the burst of intense concentration. So this seems to me to be one of the – both implicit and explicit ideas of the book, that you have to train your brain, you have to train your focus, you have to train your attention to conduct the kind of work you want. And you said in an interview, and I found this to be an interesting line, that at any given point, you should be able to describe your current cognitive calisthenics routine just as you might describe your current exercise routine. I could describe my current exercise routine. It's very unimpressive. But I couldn't describe my cognitive calisthenics routine. So what is yours? What do you mean when you say that? Right. So I think there's two aspects to cognitive calisthenics. There's, if we're going to use, I guess, the athletic metaphor, there's what you do to directly train your ability to concentrate, to make it deeper, to make it more intense. And then there's the general fitness. So let's say I wanted to be a better triathlete. There would be the training I actually did in the gym or on the track. And then there would be things like the sleep I get, the, how I eat, the fact I don't smoke, just sort of the general fitness lifestyle. Both seem to be relevant for uh, cognitive acuity, the ability to concentrate intensely, that there should be activities that you do, and I can give you some examples, that stretch your ability to concentrate. They increase your comfort with concentration, the depth you can achieve, the amount of time you can sustain that because it's incredibly trainable. If you don't train it, you're not going to be very good at it. If you train it a lot, you can be fantastic at it. And then there's also the activities you do to set the general cognitive fitness, to set a, a brain environment that's conducive or capable of supporting intense concentration. And I think both of them have to be treated separately. So I can give you just one example of both categories. So there's give a bunch. Yeah. So in, in the cognitive fitness, the actual direct training category, something I spent a lot of time doing, especially during my, my years as a postdoctoral associate, was a technique called productive meditation. And I apologize for appropriating the term meditation because this is the absolute opposite of what. Yeah, I was going to say, I think a bunch of Zen Buddhists just cried. Exactly, exactly, yes. So Standing I, by the road, a single tear rolling down the Dalai Lama's cheek. Right, as I, as I walk by in the background thinking about professional challenges and calling it meditation. But uh, appropriation of the term aside, it's actually a very effective technique. And what you do is you take a professional problem and you go for a walk. For some reason, it needs to be walking. This just works best. While you're walking, you try to make progress on the professional problem just in your head. 
So for example, I'll do writing in my head while doing productive meditation, trying to, how am I going to structure this piece? Or how am I going to structure this introduction? I can't get into it. Let me move the pieces. Or I'll work on a math proof in my head. Okay, how do I get to this, this result I'm trying to prove? Just like in mindfulness meditation, when you notice your attention wanders from the task and starts thinking about some email you need to write or whatever, you just notice it and you bring your attention back to the task. So you, sort of, you notice it, bring it back, notice it, bring it back. Do this for a month. You'll find when you first do it, if you've never done it before, your brain is everywhere. Just like when people are new to mindfulness meditation. You do it for a month and you realize, hey, now I can go an hour, an hour and a half on foot, keeping one thing in my head and actually making significant progress on it. So to me, that's like pull-ups for the brain. On the fitness side, this is where, for example, breaking your addiction to distraction like we talked about is one of the most important things you can do is making sure that you don't have this Pavlovian connection that at the slightest hint of boredom, you need stimuli. And I, I'm not making a, a moral judgment about that connection. I'm, I'm not saying it's, it's a good addiction or a bad addiction. I'm just saying in the context of being able to concentrate intensely, that particular addiction is harmful because deep work by definition is boring in the sense that you only have one stimuli. You're just doing one thing. And so if your brain demands novel stimuli – then it's not going to tolerate deep work. And so there's a lot of things you can do. I had a whole chapter in my book called Embrace Boredom, which it really was saying break this addiction. And, and so there's a lot of things you can do from, for example, scheduling the time you use distracting or entertaining stimuli. And you could schedule lots of times for it. The, the goal is not to eliminate it in this exercise. is to actually have plenty of experiences throughout the day where you want distraction and you don't get it. It's that rejection, that practice rejecting the need for distraction, which can actually help you break the addiction. Other things you can do is, for example, if you're a big social media user, take it off the phone. Most of the addictiveness that the large attention economy conglomerates bake into the software to try to get more of your time and attention are really baked into the phone applications. So if it's you're accessing it through the web, hey, you're not giving up any of the information and any of the uses you have for it, but you're getting it out of your pocket, you're breaking the addictive cycle. Or you could go more extreme and you know, of course, I get in trouble for saying things like this, but I've never had a social media account. And I think it's it's perfectly fine for probably more people to follow suit and just say, for what I do, I don't need it. I really respect my time and attention. I'm nervous about how addictive these things are. To quote George Packer, I avoid Twitter not because I'm better than it, but because I think I let my kids go hungry. I just want nothing to do with that. I think that's okay as well. So you have the sort of direct training piece and then you have the lifestyle pieces. Are you setting up a cognitive lifestyle conducive to long periods of focus when it comes time? I'm fascinated by that last bit. The thing you've written before that I, I liked was that you have made very conscious choices about which kinds of social communication to invest in. And you, you spend a lot of time blogging, yeah. but you don't do Twitter, you don't do Facebook. Yeah. And that seems to be working out fine for you. But one of the things about that that I think is interesting is that it implies this idea that it is easier to be 100% off than only 15% on. I think that the normal reaction somebody would have to this, to somebody that I would have to this, is, well, why not have a Twitter account but just not be on it much? And it seems to me the insight here is that these things are built very, very adeptly, very, very intelligently to be extremely addictive. Yes. And that, you know... At home, I just do not keep Oreos in the house Yeah, because I can eat zero Oreos, but I can't eat one. Yeah. One is the number of Oreos I simply cannot consume. Yes. <laughs> this seems to be the approach you're taking to social media, that it, it's not – that maybe it would be great if you could do it at 15%, but you can't. Or at least it seems hard. Or at least I worry I want to be able to. I worry I want to be able to. And, and really when we, we talk about addictive social media, it's mainly the really big players – 
because it's the really big players who have a lot of money to spend and a lot of pressure from their public investors, you need to turn a profit. And they turn a profit by mining time and attention. So just like Exxon is going to do whatever they can to get as much oil as they can out of the ground because every gallon of oil they extract is going to make this much profit on it, Twitter or Facebook has a massive investor pressure to mine as much time and attention as possible out of the head of users worldwide. And so it's not that this is evil. This is just how they make money. But the problem is they're too good at it. <laughs> this is why I worry about it. When you have this many billions of dollars being invested in how can we get as much time and attention as possible out of people's heads, they're going to get really good at it. So you recommend in the book actually tracking how much time a day, how much time a week you spend in this state of deep work. And I'm curious, and this may sound like a dumb question, how do you know if you're in that state? Yeah, it's, it's not a dumb question because you can trick yourself into thinking this was deep, but it wasn't really. So a, a couple of heuristics I like to give is I break time into pretty big blocks. You have to think about at least 60 to 90 minute blocks when you're talking about deep work. I don't subscribe to the notion that I just did 10 minutes of deep work. It takes 20 minutes even just to clear out the cognitive residue that allows deeper concentration to happen. And a couple of heuristics are if there is any glance at a distraction, the block doesn't count. Oh, wow. The kind of steep work, it's what you're doing and how you're doing it. So the how matters. Any glance at distraction, an inbox or a phone, because that could leave up to 20 minutes of cognitive residue, I think invalidates it. So it needs to be really free of distraction. And then the task that you're working on needs to be something that's skilled with respect to your current level of skills. It needs to be something that's pushing your cognitive capabilities to their limit. So something that would be difficult for just a college graduate right off the street to replicate. It's actually skilled craft. And you need to have the sense that you were pushing your mind towards its limit, that you're actually giving it your full cognitive resources. It should feel somewhat exhausting. So is reading a book on the subject that you work on deep work? Yes, that can be deep work. So if you're trying to read a book that you need to understand, so you're reading, doing deep reading, so trying to read for comprehension, doing it without distraction for a long period of time, that's deep work. I want to focus for a minute on this idea of how do you know when you're pushing your mind to its capacity? You're a little miserable. <laughs> deep work's hard. It's hard. I mean, just like lifting a heavy weight or trying to push a sprint. Well, that's an interesting tension with this other idea of flow work because it there's is. like a, a whole set of theories that if you get – and I always want to say this guy's name and I actually have a quote here. But do you know how to Maheli say his name? C, we'll say. Yeah, I, I sometimes can't. It's a hard name to say. Anyway, yes. but his book is Flow. It's a very, very influential theory. But yeah. part of the idea, and I've certainly felt this as a writer, part of the idea is that when you're in it, it's an intensely pleasurable state. Yeah. So are you saying that being in that state where you're just jamming on a piece and you're getting those words on, on the page, but it's not miserable, it's not at the edge of what you can do. In fact, all of a sudden, this work, which may be very high quality work, is feeling very easy. Is that not deep work? Yeah, it's a hard question. I've had this debate. I've actually had this debate with positive psychologists where we're, we're trying to go back and forth on this. And my, my general question is they both are. So there, there's a couple different general states of deep work. One of the most productive is when you're in a state of deliberate practice, which is where you're actually pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. Uh, this is typically the state that makes you better at something. It's also typically the state that can extract your, your highest quality work. You're pushing yourself beyond where you're comfortable. And it's not pleasurable in the short term, though it can be very satisfying in the long term. The proper sort of psychological resource here would be the work of Anders Ericsson. Then you have flow state, which is the state where the task directly and correctly aligns with your current level of ability and you get lost in what you're doing. 
I'm happy to count that under the umbrella of deep work, but I don't want them to be equivalent. A lot of deep work is uncomfortable because you're, you're writing a hard piece, for example, for the most part is hard, right? It's, it's uh, I can't make this opening work. I, I'm, I'm not being clear here. You're trying to reorganize the elements of the story in your head to make it fit together. I mean, sometimes things flow and you feel good. A lot of times it's hard. So I'm willing to put the flow states underneath the umbrella of deep work, but I don't want to make them equivalent concepts. So I want to talk about a different concept, which I came across in, in a book maybe a year or two ago called fake work. Are you, are you familiar with this book? No. So the idea of fake work, which I think is a useful concept, is that there is now all kinds of labor that people do at their jobs all day that is not actually pushing the organization forward. It's not actually aligning mm. with the goals of the organization. Right. But it feels to them and it looks to their managers like work. And I think here a lot about keeping up with every moment of the conversation in Slack or in Twitter. Yeah. That's not something I'm asking of myself or of my writers or of my editors. But I think to everybody there, and in, including to me, it feels like work. And so you go home at the end of the day and you are exhausted. Yeah. I mean, keeping up with these flows of information, these streams of information is very, very difficult work, actually. You've got to be checking in constantly. Yeah. You, you've got to like be following things and tracking them back. But- in terms of did Vox attract more audience, did it do more high quality work? It's pretty rare that those things actually contribute, I think. Yeah. And I guess you have a, a little bit of an idea here. It's similar in shallow work, but there does seem to be this thing that has emerged where we have given people a lot more labor. So their jobs are actually harder, but it's not work that we really need done. And I'm curious how you think about distinguishing those. It's something I've thought a lot about, and I haven't heard the term fake work, but right in line with that idea. I wrote some about it in this book, but it's something I've been evolving my thoughts on even since. And one distinction I think is useful is trying to distinguish between what I call productivity and true productivity. And so productivity is the short-term, small-scale measure of how many things happened today, how many things did you get done, how quickly did, did small-term tasks transpire. True productivity is a measure of how much positive impact did you have on the bottom line of the organization? And that these are often very different things. The argument I make in the book essentially is because knowledge work is new and somewhat bewildering, we don't really know how to measure true productivity very well. I called it the metric black hole in the book that we, we actually struggle. I mean, how do we actually quantify, for example, you know, your particular contribution to the bottom line of Vox today in what you did? It's not widgets per hour anymore. And so because we can't directly measure true productivity, What's going to happen instead? This leaves a vacuum. When you don't have that true metric available, what's going to rise instead? And, and I think what we're going to fall back on is what we see, which are metrics that are publicly visible busyness, as well as behaviors that make your life easier in the moment. These are the two things that the human condition is going to fall back onto. So everyone being connected, that makes your life easier in the exact moment. Hey, I need something. I know if I bother Ezra on Slack, I'm going to get it right now. So we'll fall back on those behaviors because it makes our life easier. and also. Busyness as a public display of productivity, that's sort of intuitive to us. And I think you need the pressure of true productivity style metrics to actually push people into the configurations that are more productive. We, again, we see this in other sectors of work. I mean, an assembly line, for example, is an incredibly inconvenient way to run a factory. It, it, tons of overhead and logistics and control, and it's a, it's a huge pain for everyone involved. But because you have clear true productivity metrics, those could actually drive this particular system towards a much more optimal configuration. So I think this is what's happening in knowledge work. We get more fake work because we don't 
we don't have the right true metrics observable yet. And that's really what drives the, the it's like entropy basically, right? The configurations that are most productive for an organization are high energy states. They're not natural states. You actually have to put a lot of energy into the system to push a system into that configuration. And without it, we're going to fall back into sort of more of a, a soup of molecules. There's also a kind of risk aversion here. And I think it's what a lot of these systems take advantage of. The feeling that any individual check-in on your email, say, is not the most important. But there are those times, and I think they're rarer than maybe we really recognize, but they do happen, where a really important email did come in and it did need to be responded to reasonably quickly. And a tremendous amount of our habits, and I find at least introspectively, that a tremendous amount of the anxiety that leads me to constantly check in is a fear that something has blown up and I'm needed to help unblow it. Yeah. <laughs> and 999 times out of a thousand, it isn't true. Yeah. And, and even that last time, it usually is not the case that the 10 minutes really mattered or somebody would have like given me a call. Yeah. But you have this good line and it comes from Tim Ferriss that you need to develop the habit of letting small bad things happen. If you don't, you'll never find time for the really good big things. Yeah. And I'd like to hear your thoughts a little bit more on the idea of small bad things because a lot of this idea of being continuously available, of communicating back and forth very quickly comes, I think, from a fear of small bad things, even as small as inconveniencing somebody who wants an answer from you. Yes. Yes. Well, we're wired to be tribal. Social interactions are incredibly important in our evolutionary past. And so things like email hijack this wiring. And, and to our brain... Seeing an, an email sitting there that re requires a response and not answering it, our brain somewhere deep back in its recesses, you know, interprets this like a member of your tribe is standing there trying to get your attention and you're snubbing them, which would be a perhaps disastrous thing to do back in the sort of Neolithic age. And so we treat the same urgency to answering these emails, even if the person who's sending the email would tell you directly – I don't need you to answer this right away. I'm just getting it off my plate. It sits there and it feels like it's the person next to us at the tribal fire and we're ignoring them and that they're seething and that it's going to cause a rift in the tribe. And so it is difficult to basically push back on that evolution hardwire to say, you know what, it's okay to annoy people. People might be a little bit annoyed. They might be a little bit inconvenienced. My approach to email, for example, which I understand can't be replicated in a lot of settings, is I'm just bad at it. And I spend a lot of time apologizing to people <laughs> because I'll do things like this week. I had a last minute grant application. So I essentially didn't send emails for three days. And now today I'm going to have to send some apologies, you know, okay, yeah, you know, I know you need this. Sorry, I was doing something else, uh, blah, blah, blah. And people for the most part don't care because I'm not getting an email response from me wasn't really that important to them. And I think it's okay to be okay with that. I'm bad at email. Look, I, I try to check this. I try to get back to things, but, you know, I miss things. What is your email routine? Are you Do you try to batch? Do you check in only at certain times? How do you do it? Well, it depends on the day. So I have deep work days and non-deep work days. So if it's a deep work day, you know, I might not look at it or I'll look at it at the end of the day. And if it's a more of an administrative day, teaching day, meeting day, then I'll probably see it more often as I'm trying to process through things and catch up. So it just depends. And then sometimes I'll go multiple days without looking at it if I'm diving into something deeper. What are the things that distract you? You're not on Twitter. It doesn't mean you're on Facebook. I mean, what – when your brain has the impulse to go fuck off for a minute, yeah. where does it go? I've protected myself from a lot of that because I worry about it. So I don't have social media. That helps. I also have broken the web browsing habit. So I don't have a stable of websites 
that I cycle through. I used to. I got rid of that. If you give me a web browser and say, go entertain yourself, I actually don't have an instinctual place to go. I got rid of RSS feeds. I don't want there to be a place that's collecting. My, my thought is if the mark, if I like a blog well enough, then I'll remember it to go to it when, when I actually want to look at it. So that, that actually cuts Are there down. blogs on that list for you? I hate to say it as a blogger. I don't read a lot of blogs. I actually, I actually don't read a lot online. So yeah. what, are you, what are you reading? What are you doing during the day? Well, I work. <laughs> so when I work, I work really hard. And it's for set hours. And I align them with childcare because I like to be around my kids, my wife, when childcare is not there. And so when I'm working, I work really hard. And I don't take breaks for the most part. I mean, I don't web surf. You're reading academic papers, books, that kind of thing. What is what is your information flow like, I guess, is a question I'm asking. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's a good question. So it depends on, on what part of my life. But yeah, I'm reading academic papers. I'm thinking, trying to solve new things. I'm writing. I read a lot of books. And we're actually where I, this is baby cheating, my no web surfing rule, but actually where I, where I find a lot of sort of contemporary interesting content, maybe be online that's relevant to, to my writing, readers send it to me. So I, I sort of have this for free army of people out there sort of sifting through the content who know me well because they've seen my writing for the last decade and they say, okay, you have to read this column from The Guardian. You've got to read this piece of The Economist. And so that's where I, I find my way. That's how I filter my way to interesting online content. Do you stay up on the news? I do. I do it in a very old-fashioned way. I get the paper Washington Post delivered to my house every morning. And it sounds like leave it to Beaver, but I read it at the breakfast table with my kids and a cup of coffee. And we have NPR on in the evening when we're making dinner. I feel just as up on the news, the nuanced understanding of what's going on in the news, I think, as, as almost anyone else I know who's also getting the, the drip coming in all day through, through Twitter. You, I mean, you might have a more nuanced understanding. Yeah, the Post is great. And, and it it forces you to read things you wouldn't have clicked on too. Well, th this is one of the things I think about for my own work and for, for the work of my colleagues, the crowd out of slower information and faster information. So when you're hooked into Twitter, you're hooked into Facebook, you are getting a very fast stream of news-like information. Mm -hmm. And some of it is real news and some of it is commentary on the news and some of it is snark and some of it is totally unrelated. But it's coming so fast and you're getting so much of it, you feel very up on the news. But the time you are spending trying to not fall behind is obviously time you're not reading longer articles, not reading books, not reading, you know, a long form piece from the New York Review of Books. It came out a couple of weeks ago and has been sitting on your, you know, next to your chair. But, you know, you know, it'll be there every night. So it doesn't feel as urgent to check versus some of the more ephemeral kinds of news that, you know, will disappear. Yeah. And so you feel like you'll never catch them again. And so the result, I think, is we have a very, very strong set of habits pushing us to check these fast-flowing news streams, but the news is very shallow in them, and it's crowding out whether or not we really recognize it. Time we'd spend getting a deeper understanding of individual stories in forms and formats that don't cry out for our attention quite as much. Right. And I think that's true. And of course, it differs, I mean, depending on what your job is and what you do. But Looking at my own life, I like to quote the Stanford computer scientist Donald Knuth who got rid of email actually in the early 90s and his explanation was it's not my job to be on top of things. It's actually my job to be underneath things, to be sitting back there and doing the, the deep thinking about fundamental principles. I'll leave it to other people to be on top of the latest breaking. And I've taken that to heart a little bit. I think that's fine for me. I'm not, I'm not running a media organization. I don't have to produce a daily column. And so for me, I know what's going on in the world but I would rather spend more of my time sort of doing the – the slow stuff. 
the slow stuff, trying to create the new ideas, the new principles, the new proofs, than I would be on top of every latest, greatest thing. Speaking of not having to write a column, so you write a weekly blog post. Yeah. And I read somewhere where you explained your system for that, that you do it at 8 p.m., right after putting your children to bed in a nice big leather chair in your living room with a record on the record player and a drink. Yes. And the ritual of it is as much about relaxing me as it is producing writing. Yeah. That sounds like a much more relaxing way than I produce writing, which is usually in a frenzied hurry. <laughs> uh, a caffeinated frenzy. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm a little bit curious about the thinking around that, about ritualizing and trying to make a relaxing ritual out of work. I've written columns. I've written weekly columns before, and it often has this quality of being the, the last thing on your list. What is different about giving it a protected and predictable time and space and context? Well, I think there's two elements to that. There's a pragmatic element, which is when you study people who seem to be adept at deep work, they tend to have these rituals and routines surrounding the deep work sessions. And my conjecture is they do so because it helps their mind more successfully slip into the mindset of deep concentration. So if you know, I do this type of deep activity at this time in this location, and I have this ritual surrounding it, your brain learns that. And so especially if you study professional thinkers and writers and novelists and, and scientists of different times, you see they have these rituals, you know, Darwin's Sandwalk or David McCullough's Writing Cabin, these rituals that help put their mind. And I think it's a very pragmatic thing. I need to shift my mind into this, into this mindset because I'm about to ask a lot of it. The other thing is I added this chapter to the book after I started. It wasn't the original outline, but I added this chapter because the signal kept coming up in the noise of the research I was looking at, that deep work is meaningful. You know, the deep work is something, it feels good. It's more satisfying. It makes your professional life feel better for all sorts of different reasons. And so I, I think there's value in trying to see it through this lens of this is a very meaningful, satisfying activity in my life. And, and so having these rituals around that sitting in the big chair, putting on the record, you know, trying to connect yourself to deep thinkers of times past, that, that type of ritualization is actually an acknowledgement that craftsmanship, deep thinking, production of thought. I mean, this goes back to the, the origins of sort of human civilization. It's something we've always found meaningful, something we've always respected. So there, there's something nice in trying to recapture just a little bit of that. And so one of the ideas around it being meaningful, and, and this was, I thought, an interesting argument of the book, was that it is becoming economically more scarce. Yeah. And that in becoming more scarce, that if you think about all of your competitors being caught in this continuous anxiety and distraction and response cycle, that they're not being able to do a lot of this. And so if you are really able to pull yourself out of it, that there will be a reward for that down the road. And one of the things I thought was interesting there is that it may not be true, it seems to me, that that is correct across an industry, that if everybody pulled out all at once, right. I would be open to the idea that there is more value to being in the news stream, say, in my, organ in my world than I would sometimes like to believe. But it can't be the case that it's good for everybody simultaneously. And so it sounds to me that one of the arguments you're making to people is an argument that this is a competitive advantage for right now, that until people figure out how to manage this stuff a little bit better, there's an inefficiency. Yes. And if you're the person who can get out of it, you can actually benefit from that. I think that's true. I call it the deep work hypothesis. And it's two trends. One is I think as the knowledge economy gets more complex, it's going to increasingly reward the ability to do deep work for various reasons. And we have this other trend going on right now driven by technological forces that are making people worse at deep work, concentration, sustaining concentration than they probably ever have been in recent history of skilled labor. 
if you look at those two trends, you see it's a classic case of economic scarcity. Something is becoming more valuable at exactly the same time that it's becoming more rare. That means that you you stand to gain great rewards if you're one of the few to actually cultivate it. So I, I absolutely take that positive approach. And in my more cynical times, when I start getting all the pushback I normally get, if I say something like, I don't like Facebook and I get the reams of pushback about how terrible that is, in my more cynical times, I can say, OK, that's OK, because um, – I'll remain more focused. <laughs> this is going to give me a bigger competitive advantage. So that that's sort of my positive spin is I don't want to spend too much time demonizing distraction. Let's talk about the positives of its opposite. And we're undervaluing, I think, systemically the positives of the ability to focus intensely. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? And the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or find it wherever you listen. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So let's say you're listening to this and you're persuaded but you don't really know where to begin. What are the first three steps you would urge somebody to do, irrespective of industry, right. to help them begin, help me begin, working on this muscle a bit more and living a little bit more in, in this way? The two things I normally recommend people is, is you want to take one step in each of those training categories. So in terms of trying to actively promote depth in your life, start putting on your calendar some appointments with yourself to do deep work. Go a couple weeks out and treat those appointments like you would a doctor's appointment or a meeting with an investor, something that it's an appointment. If someone tries to schedule something during that time, you say, no, I'm, I'm busy from one to three, but here's when I'm available. People understand the semantics surrounding meetings and appointments. They're willing to work around it. You don't have to explain why. So start with a, a moderate amount, say three or four hours a week, have it on the calendar, have it protected. So you just have this experience of regularly going into depth. And during those pre-scheduled times, Maintain the zero tolerance distraction policy. During those times, not a glance at the internet, not a glance at the phone. I'm just going to try to take one thing that I think is important and uses my skills and I'm going to try to work real hard on it. The second thing is take some step to start gaining back cognitive fitness. Most people are not willing, for example, to just go blanket quit social media. But I would suggest a couple things. One, take social media applications off your phone. I've had a lot of people who say, I can give you 19 reasons why I have to use social media, why it's so important in my life. And then they do this experiment where they take it off their phone. So it becomes 10% more difficult to log into Facebook or Twitter and they stop using it altogether. 
and they realize, okay, wait a second, maybe I was telling all these stories about the key role it plays in my life and why I always have to be looking at it. But once I added just a slight impediment, I stopped using it altogether, actually, I think helps sort of reassess the value. But more importantly, you take the addictive aspects out of the service while still maintaining your access to the information or other value that you get out of it. And the, the third thing I'd recommend is starting to schedule the time you do novel, distracting, stimulating things. And you could schedule lots of times, but it should be scheduled time. So maybe after work, you say, I'm going to 8 to 10. I'm going to break out the laptop and just go nuts, no holds barred, web surf, social media, whatever. But until 8, none of it. Or, okay, at work, I'm going to check my email and check in all this at this time, this time, this time, this time. And all the other times in between, even if you feel like you want to do it, you don't. And this is all about just practicing that muscle of I want stimuli and I said no. Even if you've scheduled 25 blocks during the day when you're going to look at stimuli, that still gives you 25 blocks between those times where you're going to feel like you want to check stimuli and you say no. And every time you do that, that's helping to break the Pavlovian connection. So that's usually how I get people started. Get it on the calendar. Start cleaning up your cognitive fitness. There can be a way in which this conversation sounds like it is about making people into hyperproductive widget makers themselves. And one of the things I thought was interesting in the book was that your argument is that this is a way to work less, that this is a way to actually be able to time box what you're doing and have gotten enough done that at 5 p.m. or whenever it is you leave, you can actually go home and spend the time with your family. And I'm curious to hear you say a little bit more about that, about the ways in which these approaches or these products, they're not necessarily just about making you more productive, but about bringing things a little bit more back into balance. I think that's absolutely true. Right. If you prioritize depth, focusing intensely on things that matter, being skeptical of the shallow things that don't and being very ruthless and minimizing them and batching them and being efficient with them, it doesn't make you into an automaton. Actually, it embraces and I think amplifies sort of what makes you human. Doing deep thinking, for example, is a more sort of deeply human activity. You're actually something that only humans can do and it, it's immensely satisfying. It also brings a type of value production and productivity that allows you to work when you work and be done when you don't. You know, I'm a long advocate of what I call fixed schedule productivity, where I fix my work schedule first. And that's the stake in the ground I start with. And everything else about my career decisions, how I work, what I take on, what I do in the day, all works backwards from I want to be done at 530. And so I think my life is the opposite of a hyper scheduled, hyper productive. You know, I work from 830 to 530. I work very intensely when I do. It's mainly deep work over the shallow work, which in the short term causes trouble, but in the long term, it produces more value. So it gives me more leverage and autonomy over how I run my days and I end at 5.30. And so I think a deep life, and I think I end the book with this quote, a deep life is a good life. So it's, it's not just about this is going to make you more productive. It's about this could make your life a better life, a more meaningful life, a more satisfying life. I get this sense that we're going to look back in 20 years and a lot of the discussions that are just starting to emerge around technology in this time and its role, not just professionally, but in our lives, philosophically, in politics, the politics of this stuff is fascinating. We're going to look back at it as an age of like very important thinking that we're going to go back and quote 25 years from now. I think people like Jaron Lanier and Douglas Rushkoff are writing books that are going to be seen as classics 25 years from now oh, that's of, of philosophical thinking. I think this is, you know, you, it's like in college, you read the philosophy, the thinkers of the centuries past, and you say, oh, mm -hmm. wouldn't it have been great to have been back when people were working this out? It's the sense the intellectual energy I get out there right now is we're at one of those periods. What do you imagine then when you think of the workplace 30 years in the future? How do you think it's different? I'm not sure exactly how it's going to look, but 
one of my conjectures is you're going to have much more separated roles for people. And what you do is going to be much more clearly defined so that you can do that thing well. So take an example like Vox, you know, just a spitball. But you might have, you can imagine a Vox of the future would have a, a very well-defined role, which is, okay, 22-year-olds, right out of school. This is the first year at Vox. This is what you do, your communication nodes. You sit there, you support a team uh -huh. of writers, and you're watching their incoming messages. So if that source they're waiting for gets back to them, you can go grab them. Hey, hey we, the source you're waiting for, grab them. They're monitoring Twitter. They're monitoring the news. They can grab you immediately if something blows up. They prepare you know, a report three times a day. They can quickly bring into the meetings and say, by the way, here's a quick summary of everything that's going on online. They, they sort of take that role out of the cognitive space of the people who also need to be uh, crafting or doing the hard deep work of crafting the story. So then, then the people crafting the story spend more longer unbroken stretches trying to integrate the research and, and actually do the writing. And then suddenly you're getting deeper stories at a higher rate out of the high-priced assets, which is the really trained brains. And then the people whose entry-level job is being the communicators and the routers are actually getting great exposure to, oh, I see how this whole world works. Mm -hmm. And so they're well set up to move on and try to move on to those roles. And you would have this sort of more variegated setup where it's not everyone's involved in everything. So it'll be, um, we will slough off the distraction of the society on the young and you will ascend to the, <laughs> yeah, to the heights the, of deep work. It'll be the right of, right of passage. You, uh, or, or we'll have a clear separation between processors and routers. This is something that in computer science they figured out in the early days of computer networks. The very first computer network technology had the CPU of the computer was involved in watching the messages going by on the wire to see, is that one I need? Is that one I need? But that took up all the cycles of the CPU. So they said, oh, we have to build a separate logic board. They call it network interface card that watches the network and does that. So the CPU can do what it needs to do, which is compute. And it'll let it know when there's a message it needs to hear about. I don't see why we couldn't have similar divisions in the world of knowledge work. There's some people whose whole job is to move information efficiently and other people's whose whole job is to compute basically, to work with the information. We could see these separations. I mean, if I ran Google, the first thing I would do would say, I don't want my developers to have email addresses. Huh. I don't want anyone. I'm paying a lot of money for these brains to produce 10x code. I don't want the HR department to be able to, to come in and, and grab their attention and, the, and the, the new lunch menu to come in and this group to come in and this manager over here to come in and grab their attention. Stay away from our... This is our prized assets. The company's built on this. We can hire someone that you can bother all day long that'll sit at a desk and have two phones to their ears and a Slack window open and 16 email accounts, and you can bother them all day long, and they'll be the firewall between us and the programmers. And I'm just surprised we don't. Instead, we get Facebook building the world's largest open office. This is the type of things I imagine, is that work is more variegated. Information channels are more diverse and well-defined with clear rules, with what goes through here, when it goes through here, who sees what comes out the other end, that we, we think a little bit more complexly about what's going on, as opposed to just the brain is a general purpose task computer. Everyone's hooked up on a network, rock and roll. It's fascinating. The, the reason I'm, I'm interested by that is that it feels to me it has to go one of two ways. I think that the level of anxiety and always onness we are asking of people is not long-term sustainable. And so one thing that could happen is we all adapt that the level of information flow we have, like my grandmother wouldn't, it would be absurd to her. Yeah. And I'm clearly adapted. I've clearly retrained myself in some way such that I can to some degree absorb it. 
Yeah. But I think it makes me at least a little bit miserable. And so either we are going to see ourselves at some point as archaic because we just couldn't – we can't even at that point imagine how fast information will be coming in 30 years or – People's level of anxiety about this stuff, the fact of being always on, of never being able to put things down, of feeling that little hit of cortisol every time you get a notification on your phone will lead to some level of revolt. People will demand slower social networks and they will demand work schedules that are a little bit more human. I genuinely don't feel like I know which one it'll be. That's interesting. So you're seeing it from the, a labor perspective. Yeah. Right? There, I mean, there's two perspectives. There's the management perspective yep. and the labor perspective, there's a, or the I guess like the capital owner perspective and the labor perspective. And they're, they're both maybe relevant. So there's the capital owner perspective, which is some companies are going to do this first to make more money. They're going to get a better return on capital. That's going to spread. Capital markets are very efficient. When, when an idea works, that idea spreads. It doesn't matter how people feel about it personally. But I think the labor angle is also interesting. I also think I'd go uh, an unlooked at part of this whole discussion is being a little bit hyperbolic here. But, you know, people worry about the robot apocalypse or the AI mm-hmm. apocalypse, right? The machines are going to take over the world. Well, the first step of that takeover is not going to be T-1000s. I think it's already here and I think it's email. Because if you think about from a labor perspective, what email and related tools have done to a, a whole labor force is that it's, I think, essentially de-skilling the force. By forcing people to spend most of their time moving information around in emails, that's actually taking time away that they could be honing skills, applying skills, producing their skills to produce things that are hard to replicate. Because moving information around in emails is incredibly replicatable. And I can say as a computer scientist, it's something that we're getting very good at. AI can replace this pretty quickly. So by it's an unintentional sort of technological revolt. Introduce this technology that de-skills people, that keeps a, a whole class of labor spending most of their time doing this easily replicatable activity. That's step one. Step two of the invasion is, oh, the AI technology just got to the point where we don't really know people to do that anymore. And if the main thing you've done in your job is sort of, well, I kind of answer email and move things around, your job no longer needs to exist. And so I think there's also a labor argument from this point of view that if you push people into the hyperactive hive mind, you're actually pushing them into a configuration that's going to be more easily automated, something that's That's more easily replaceable. There's also the user point of view. So I don't know if you followed, because you're not on Facebook, this debate about fake news on Facebook. I followed it in the paper newspaper. They wrote about it, yeah. And I don't think fake news was a huge player in the 2016 election. I'm a little skeptical of this. But what I think you're seeing there is a level of almost sentiment analysis. People are interested in this debate and they're willing to believe fake news was devastating because they hate the informational environment they're in, because they feel the news they're reading probably is fake, because they think that what they're seeing, what their friends are seeing actually isn't good. And I, I've been giving a lot of speeches after the election and in almost every one I've asked people, you know, raise your hand if you thought social media made 2016 better. Nobody raises their hand. Yeah. I say, like, raise your hand if when you log into it now or during the election, you felt better, emotionally better, whatever that means to you. And nobody raises their yeah. hand. And, you know, I think one reason people are so willing to believe the worst about what's happening on Facebook is that they themselves are feeling pretty negatively about their experience on Facebook, even as they're still addicted to it, yeah. even as they're still going back. Yeah. I see it in people around me. And I don't think long-term you can do that. I don't think long-term that is a solid foundation. At mean, some point, as a business model. As a business yeah. model. I think, I think at some yeah. point people will migrate, and this goes a little bit to 
this is a different way, I think, of framing your idea about the profit incentive. So maybe not towards deep work exactly, but I find myself, I won't check any social media in the morning except for Instagram because Instagram is a slow, calm, happy place. It's just like people put up pictures of their babies and so, their food and so all what you happens do is on heart. Instagram? You see photos? You just see photos okay. and you can put a heart on them. It's a very okay. sweet little corner of the internet. And if things keep going the way they are, I don't think people can absorb this level of anxiety, urgency, and conflict. And, you know, that will create potential for, I think, pretty different modes of communication going forward. Yeah. I think that's probably going to happen. The thing about Facebook, I don't know if there's ever been anything like this before in the history of the world. Something that has such a massive scope and yet its position is so tenuous. I mean, there's probably comparable massive corporations that had huge scope. You can think of like the Dutchies and the trading companies back in the 18th century or something like that, that had this huge worldwide scope that affected so much of the globe. But Facebook's hold on their user base is so tenuous. You look at these informal surveys where you ask someone, how much how much would you pay each month to use Facebook? In other words, like if we raise Facebook to this price, would you pay it? And the amount is like a dollar or two. I mean, people value it very low, very low. You move it off someone's phone onto an app and now they onto the, the web browser. And now it takes a little bit more effort to log in. They stop using it. You say it's going to cost you $2 a month. They would lose half their user base. And so it's this weird setup we have that I think is is unprecedented in economic history that you can have a service that counts three quarters of the American adult population among its customers, and yet you could lose almost any of those users almost overnight. They would probably not miss it that much if they stopped using it. So I don't know if I'd be investing a lot of money in Facebook stock. Just it would give me heart it would give me heartache. That's interesting. Yeah, that they have this huge reach, but it's very low valued among the people who use it. And there's a huge amount of skepticism among the people who use it. We're like, well I kind of have to use it for cultural pressures, but let me tell you six things I don't like about it. I mean, especially at our once you get closer to to our age, and we're not old, but you know, thirties or late twenties, mm-hmm. people that remember when Facebook first arrived and and sort of the first wave of it. Almost everyone you and I probably talk to will say the same thing: Yeah, yeah, but I barely check it anymore. I mean, how often do people say, "Yeah, I'm on Facebook, but I don't check it all the time," or "I only use it for X or whatever"? People are already sort of caveating their their use of it, so. That also gives me optimism that it's not as if these services that are causing some negativity are so ingrained in our sort of culture or social life that we can never get rid of them. I think we can innovate and we can replace them. The interesting thing there, though, I think, is that the technology we haven't talked about much, but I think is important here is the smartphone. Yeah. And it just created a space for distraction at any moment in your life. Ben Thompson had this great, he had a very interesting piece on this, and he wrote that what it turned out was that the great space of unharvested attention wasn't when you were sitting down to do something, but when you were doing, when you wanted to be doing something else. And I think what makes Facebook and similar kinds of social networks that, have, that are really good at working symbiotically with a phone effective yeah. is that I'm not sure it's what we want, but I, I do think that we may not enjoy, but we value distraction through our own behavior very, very highly. The phone has made distraction something you can have anytime, anywhere, all the time. And that is the crucial enabling technology that, in my view, I don't see how that goes away or where that goes. Right. But your use of the term value is interesting because do we value it or are we being exploited by it? I mean, I, I think that's don't fair. like the addictive pull the services have on them. When people validate or su- try to support these services because I, I I do radio debates on this. I'm constantly getting yelled at for saying bad things about social media. 
they never give the reason being, I like the distraction. I don't like to be bored. I like the ability I don't have to be bored. It's always something more complicated or something about their their life or society or activism or certain use cases they have. Right. But they'll never – people never actually say it's because I don't like being bored. And I, people don't like the addictive aspect of it. I think it, it's more of an exploitative relationship than it is a relationship of great. I, I hated being as bored as I was. I think that's probably right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who knows? But it, it is this funny thing and it goes to our, our earlier discussion about productivity there are certain kinds of advances because this is the whole thing. People say, oh, no, we have had these huge productivity advances. We just don't know how to value them, right? Because like with Facebook, it's free. And so it's not showing up correctly in GDP. And I think for a million reasons, this isn't true. And I've written a long piece about this. But, yeah, but it's complicated. Economists but it, it's, get real. If you start talking about productivity yes. numbers, it gets complicated. I, I've, yeah. Yes, I've been down this road. Yeah. And you get into this whole thing about how did we measure other things. And But the problem is that – and I've had this discussion with a lot of economists – which is how do you value heroin? People will pay a lot for it. They really want it. Yeah. How do you look at some of these things and say that what you're valuing, the fact that some people value it is actually a, a good thing? Addiction is a very powerful force in, in human behavior. And we don't have a great language in economics to say that when the, sometimes people are doing things they don't really want to do, that they're not really the best thing for them. And I'm not yeah. saying we should. I'm not, yeah. I'm not proposing that we begin offering sharp value judgments on people's choices here. But we are in an age when what people are getting extremely good at doing is addicting us to certain behaviors. Yes. And it may be that we, in economic terms, value those behaviors highly in terms of how much time we spend on them or how much money we spend on them, right? Because yeah. Candy Crush people spent a lot of money on. Yeah. But by the same token, you may wish you were freed of it. Yeah. You may wish there was some other force that would come in yeah. and make you stop doing yeah. this. You would pay and, a lot of money yes. to get that next hit of heroin, but that's... You'd pay so an even, economist would say this would is a high value to you. You yeah. to get the pill that would make you not want it. Yeah. I don't know what that pill is for this stuff, yeah. but I think that's an interesting I think it is. And that, that's why I think the, the classical marginal productivity numbers are useful, at least when you're talking about what's the hidden value of these things to the professional world, is as we go back to classic marginal productivity, value produced per person. Because if all these things are out there and they're producing value or not producing value, what you should see is that people produce more value per unit time spent working. And, and that's the number that's not budging. Yes, number's not budging. Even though we have smartphones and we've more connected, we've done it's it's an experiment. We've had a massive overhaul in the role of connection and connectivity in the workplace. We're massively connected in a way that we massively were not 15 years ago. It's not moving the numbers on the value produced per person. And I again, economists argue because there's also 19 other factors that are relevant in the last 15 years. But given the the impact of this change, how seismic the smartphone revolution, email revolution is, if it really was going to be this source of productivity, those numbers should have moved. I agree with that. All right. And then here's the question we used to, to close out this interview. What are three books that you like or that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? So when it comes to this debate about the role these technologies play in our life, which I think we're just trying to get our arms around, especially... When we get to the complicated territory of, say, social media, where now you're mixing in things like distraction and, and exploitation from companies with positive things like expression and advocacy and, and organization and information that you wouldn't otherwise get. There's some really smart thinkers on these that I think should be pushed more. So I would suggest looking at the work, for example, of the technologist Jaron Lanier. Read his 2009 manifesto, You Are Not a Gadget. 
read his 2012 book, Who Will Own the Future? I think it's a it's an original and, and, and really smart take on the sort of humanist impact of taking the internet, which was this wonderful dem democratic peer-to-peer -peer wild place that supports all these good things and then consolidating it under one or two massive conglomerate corporations and, and why we should be worried about that. I would also recommend Douglas Rushkoff's most recent book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, which has a, a very interesting economic analysis of what's, what's the economic impact, what's actually happening with these huge attention economy conglomerates consolidating more and more of the internet under their walls. And what, what they're actually doing is a very astute economic analysis of what they're actually doing is essentially taking money and value out of communities across the country. The, the average American adult between 16 and 64 spends up to three hours per day on these social media sites. That's three hours they could be training making more money, getting a better job, promotion in their job, or interacting with their community, interacting with their family, being helpful to their community. This is all value that could have been generated and staying in communities that's being extracted and consolidated into stock price and into the real estate values of, of Northern California. And so they're bomb throwers, right? I mean, this is, this is sort of out there stuff, but I think it, it presents an interesting counterpoint to a lot, of the, a lot of the discussion right now surrounding these tools like social media, which tends to be a little bit more utopian and which, which tends to equate these particular corporate tools with the internet writ large. And it tends to equate criticism of these tools with criticisms of all of the possibilities of the internet. So I would recommend those books as a nice counterpoint to some of the more positive and also well-validated, but some of the more positive utopian speaking about these technologies. And I, it, to me, it gave me a much more nuanced view of what's really going on. Cal Newport, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Cal. That was great. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you, as always, to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back next week. to do's, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.